Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we're joined by Joyce Sang, Assistant Dean and Critic at Yale University's School of Architecture, and Bamal Mendez, Assistant Dean and Director of Undergraduate Studies at the Yale School of Architecture. Joyce and Bamal are both principals of Plan B Architecture and Urbanism, an interdisciplinary design and research collaborative based in New Haven, Connecticut. On today's site visit, we are going to discuss our recent visit to Weir Court, a courtyard on the campus of Yale University, completed in 1924. This episode of Site Visit was recorded live in Weir Hall, a Victorian collegiate Gothic building located within Jonathan Edwards College, one of Yale's first residential colleges. Opening in 1925, Weir Hall served as the home to the Department of Architecture until 1963, when the school moved to its current building, Rudolph Hall. Today, Weir Court looks over the art and architecture building designed by Paul Rudolph and Louis Kahn's Yale Art Gallery. Joyce and Mamal's passion for Yale's history and landscape has influenced their own work, as evidenced by their recent participation in the 2017 exhibit Columbus, an annual exploration of art and architecture in Columbus, Indiana. We began by asking them why they chose Weir Hall for today's site visit and why the space is important to them. We're sitting right now in um, what used to be called Weir Hall. Now it's been six annexed or becomes part of Jonathan Edwards and is the library there. Um, but Weir Court is just one of these sort of marvelous sort of hidden courtyard gardens that seems very quintessential Yale when you think of these sort of, you know, East Coast Ivy League um, places. It's sort of um, a kind of nugget, an elevated courtyard, I would say. How many feet above street level do you think it is about? 20, 20, 20 feet, 20, somebody will correct me on this, I'm sure it's wrong, <laughs> but it's about 20 feet above street level, and it's sort of hidden on the backsides of all of these notable different buildings, um, um, including amongst them Skull and Bones, which a lot of people know because of the kind of popularity and popular culture of, <laughs> of secret societies at Yale. Yeah, and wrapped in this courtyard is this kind of story of beginnings, the beginnings of the architecture school, which I think has a really interesting history. All the buildings around it that revolve around the courtyard um, mirror the story of the architecture school. It's also a beginning for us as well as a couple. We had our first date here, (laughs) if we must confess. Um, many, many years ago. <laughs> the big reveal. But the other thing that's really magical about this is, you know, being this sort of hidden, it seems like the backsides of all these buildings. Um, there's these three magnificent elm trees here, and New Haven is known as the Elm City, but um, there are no other elm trees in the entire city of New Haven because they all died during the Dutch elm disease. But since this was sort of a hidden um, courtyard with these three trees that were protected away. They didn't suffer from that disease. So you have these mm. three magnificent, you know, kind of elm trees that um, are part of this, this, this um, what's now called Weir Court. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, a lot of people who visit it know it more because you can access it through Kahn's Yale um, University Art Gallery. So it's seen, it's called sort of like the art 
galleries, what sculpture, what's garden. the official sculpture, sculpture garden. Um, so you can mm-hmm. enter through the lobby and enter out the back, and there's a, a few pieces that are in the back of the art gallery, which currently is. Mm-hmm. You couldn't walk through because it's under construction. So it's, it's an elevated courtyard, and then from that courtyard, um, right, there are trees in it. There are several pieces of uh, sculpture in it. Um, it's kind of, it has a kind of small ground, so it has that nice kind of crunchy noise when you're walking around, um, you know, the landscape. And then it's really protected um, by a collection of several other buildings. There's a high wall and then several building facades that actually kind of make the courtyard itself. And so from the courtyard, you can't even see the street anymore. You can't yeah. see the street. You can't really hear cars or traffic or, or anything. So you do feel like you're in that kind of remote campus-like uh, interior space, which is still an exterior space. But So let's maybe talk about a couple of the buildings that, are, that make that enclosed um, courtyard. So you mentioned already the... Khan Art Gallery, um, by designed by Luke Khan. Um, maybe talk about that a little bit in its relationship to it's the it's the modern piece. So maybe we go actually kind of uh, more modern and then go back in time. But sure. Um, sure. yeah, tell us a little bit about that building. Sure. So Khan's gallery was extension to the existing art gallery, uh, which is the one right next to it, which is designed by Swartot. And we'll talk about that later. But that's a, a kind of Gothic looking building, which has different eclectic styles added onto it, but it's primarily Gothic, stone Gothic uh, building. And Khan's building is unique because it's the first modern building at Yale. And we're talking here 1953. Uh, So Yale came perhaps a little late to the game, but but in a very important and kind of uh, cool way, especially with Lou Khan. He was actually a controversial choice. I think that initially some suggestions were for Philip Johnson, but Philip Johnson at the time hadn't designed um, or built much um, in the early 50s. The university had wanted Eero Saarinen, who was a graduate of the school and actually had been a student in this very building. Uh, but he had, he was too busy to do, to take on this project. <laughs> Just goes to show, I think in architecture school, you're yeah. told never, never to turn down a project. But I guess um, Saarinen was busy enough to do so. And then the dean at the time, George Ha, had suggested uh, one of the faculty members, Lou Kahn. Uh, and I think the students weren't all that thrilled with the choice. They had wanted someone like Mies van der Rohe or someone who would really put Yale on the kind of international map. Uh, So Khan was uh, a little controversial because he was a relatively unknown architect in the national scene, and uh, but he produced this phenomenal building, I think, that has lasted through the ages, which with its kind of primarily concrete uh, and brick building and glass on one. So it's all brick on one side facing the street. So it looks like a closed off box, uh, but it opens up uh, quite magnificently to the garden and it all has a glass facade to the garden. So the entire gallery is uh, exposed to the garden. And also interestingly, this was designed during the Korean War and built during the Korean War. Um, apparently they had to get permission from the defense procurement department because they're using steel. Mm. I'm not sure what the name of the department is actually, but um, Mm. they had to use steel for this building and in order to do that, uh, you needed special permission during the war because uh, it wasn't readily available. And they had to kind of market the building as a design laboratory. Uh, <laughs> and it actually was the art gallery and design center. So it wasn't just art, but it had uh, the gallery on the first few levels, uh, labs and workshops, but also on the fourth floor, it had the architecture school. So the architecture school uh, department moved from this from building here. in Weir Hall across the garden to the top floor, the fourth floor of uh, the art gallery. 
Yeah, and that, that's where people like Norman Foster went to school. Mm-hmm. And famously, if you look at this sort of you know, wonderful, typical con stair drum, they, despite the renovations, they left the graffiti that's there, which <laughs> includes you know, what architecture students like to do, which is just <laughs> deface any building that you come across. Um, so there's still this kind of tattoos that's sort of famously from that era. Foster was uh, here. Foster and Rogers, <laughs> <laughs> students on that fourth floor. That's great. But of Foster. course, it's well known for the kind of triangular um, ceiling uh, and, right, and right. Um, of course then also is one of Khan's, Louis Kahn's first buildings which then his last kind of building um, being the BAC across, uh, the, across street. the street. From where we're sitting, then we actually can see three different buildings, which yeah. are architecture schools at Yale at one time. So uh, what was Weir Hall, where we are now in Jonathan Edwards Library, so a kind of Romanesque mm-hmm. or almost gothic um, building which is stone construction Um, the art gallery which had one level which is a modern building and then we can just see kind of peeking over another more traditional building is um, the current school of architecture which is in uh, Rudolph Hall designed by Paul Rudolph um, Mm -hmm. which was I think probably also controversial when it was built or or, uh, kind of became as it was uh, an architecture school in the 60s and 70s and so um, maybe we can talk about that building a little bit. It's the current home um, and also where you teach um, every, <laughs> every semester. So how is that? Um, how, in a way, how, did, how do you think the buildings kind of reflect uh, the transformations in the school itself? And then like, we could also maybe just think about what the role of the space that architecture students are working in every day, how that might actually influence the way that you teach or the way that they learn um, and, mm-hmm. and how that kind of happens when you have such an amazing kind of collection of buildings um, mm-hmm. on campus. Sure. So, I mean, the school, the architecture school, or Rudolf Hall, as it's called, was designed in, in Originally the 60s. Originally, yeah. And mm-hmm. um, it was built in 1963, or completed in 1963. So the school, then department moved, they were, I think, in the art gallery for 10 years and then moved across the street. And I think that was a particularly formative period for the school because they were the students were actually able to see a building under construction from across their uh, Desks, studio desks across the street, and not just any building, but a, sc- a building for the School of Architecture that was designed by the, the chairman of the school at the time, Paul Rudolph. Uh, and it, it was a school of art and architecture. So at, at this point, you begin to also see the kind of slow separation, one could say, or even autonomy of the different departments. The, the gallery became its own institution. The School of Art and Architecture was still kind of conjoined together. And then in, in the early 70s, the School of architecture became its own thing and the School of Art became its own institution and then in around 2000 the School of Art moved to its own building. So over time you also see the progression of these institutions all starting together as one kind of fine arts unit uh, or department within the fine arts and then gradually becoming more independent. Um, But yes, going back to the 1960s and 70s, I think that was a very iconic period for the school. If anything, the way we still teach today uh, very much mirrors the way Paul Rudolph kind of conceived the pedagogy of the school. Um, The kind of evolution of the visiting critic system, I think, came to a kind of um, um, climax, so to speak, um, in the Paul Rudolph era. Um, So we had visiting critics such as, you know, Mies van der Rohe and Johnson and so on, coming to Yale to teach advanced studios, but you also had a very strong kind of core group of faculty. But 
I think the fundamental essence of the school is the way it's organized around this large pit spaces, uh, this large volumes, uh, and it's very open. So the, the, the studios are organized as trays around a central volume or space, which, are, which used to be slightly lowered or sunken, which are called pits. Uh, I think now Still that, that only exists in the fourth floor, but all the other pits have been raised uh, up for handicapped accessibility reasons. But I think that culture of transparency and, and being able to see each other's work, I think, is really important, not just to the school, but just the way one teaches, that it's not just about the individual experience of, of, of relating to a student or working through a project, mm -hmm. but seeing everyone else's work, and not just in your year, but in multiple years. And then the culture of conversation, I think, really changes from school to school. And I think the School of Architecture here is quite unique because it seems fairly condensed. Mm -hmm. And definitely it, it changes the environment when the review spaces are right in the middle. It's very much kind of on stage. You're not, which I think is different mm -hmm. in most of those schools where the review space is sort of off mm -hmm. from the studio space. Um, so you definitely get a lot of activity and everybody's sort of always constantly mm -hmm. aware of what's going on mm -hmm. in the pitch, whether it's a review or mm -hmm. badminton or whatever it is that's trying to do. It almost operates like a kind of theater in the round mm -hmm. where yeah. there's the, the performance stage, mm -hmm. is, the stage is essentially the kind of middle space that as soon as you enter the entire fourth floor or um, even the fifth floor, you're, you're looking or directed towards whatever is happening on that stage. Yeah. Um, I think that the carpet happens to be bright red is another, you know, is paprika color. A a um, wonderful, beautiful shade yeah. of paprika, which is a sort of orangish red color, um, very signature to the Rudolph Hall. Um, but that kind of bright color in a sea of concrete walls yeah. and concrete floors and con you know, concrete everywhere kind of, again, like draws your eye to uh, that that stage or performance or pit space. So yeah. it is It is kind of all about uh, the work that's happening around, but it, then it's really about looking at the performance of your um, classmates and the work of your classmates mm -hmm. and Definitely. You're kind of using theatrical metaphors. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, when we were students in the school or at least undergrads here, um, it wasn't used that way. So the building has definitely gone through many different iterations and additions and alterations. I think the era of when we were in college was when the fourth floor pit, which is so iconic, it was when it was still art and architecture, and art architecture mm -hmm. was just on the sixth and seventh floor, and art was on four and five. Um, so a lot of the kind of form that it, the return to the original kind of form of the building really happened with the renovation in, in 2008. 2008. Mm -hmm. yeah. And perhaps key to that was the fire in 1969, uh, which led to a lot of the kind of transformate, gradual transformations, and some would say decline of the building <laughs> from its intended use, and others would say that it was actually a kind of triumph that the school needed. But there was a kind of the building, as you said, almost instantly became controversial um, after it was designed and, and occupied. In many ways, it's perhaps its materials and the way it's, it was kind of organized, this kind of robust look came to in some way symbolize uh, the institution and perhaps what was wrong with the institutions in general at the time and this kind of reaction against institutions. And this is tied into the kind of late 60s kind of culture of protests and so on. So in, you know, some would still argue to this day that the building didn't just catch on fire but was set on fire and, that's, uh, and there are even certain members of the faculty who kind of uh, claim to have maybe played a part in that. <laughs> it's not really clear. Some people relish it. Other people prefer the 60s as if it were like the worst thing that happened to the school. You can probably that, figure yeah. out who falls in which yeah. camps. But that's sort of a 
slew of kind of transformation. Shortly after, I think, essentially, Paul Rudolph stepped down as dean and Charles Moore took over. So the building caught on fire during Charles Moore's tenure. And he was a much more, had a very different style of management uh, in the school, was much more open, but also, uh, some would say, mismanaged the school in terms of its resources and, and the use of, and the way the kind of spaces were organized. So since you brought up what it sort of how its presence is on the street and what it looks like from the outside, we could also kind of mention the exterior conditions of the building. So from from Weir Court, where we are, mm-hmm. um, we're kind of looking over a traditional slate roof of a building that's that's directly in front, and then kind of behind that traditional slate roof, you're seeing this um, Rudolph Hall, which is all concrete. Um, it has a very specific corduroy texture to the concrete on the exterior, um, maybe fewer windows than other modern buildings that we see around. So, you know, what's the, it's one of those buildings which architects and architecture students love, um, but maybe the the general um, person who's just uh, walking past the street might find it a little more defensive-like or... Abrasive. (laughs) Abrasive, (laughs) or trying to put it very nicely. Ugly Uh is another term that comes up, and of course we would jump in to defend it. So how can can people look at the building, um, who are not architects maybe, and and start to appreciate it for, um, for what it is? It's a tough building to, I think for someone to like initially without having any context. And, and unfortunately, the vast majority of people, the public in particular, never have a chance to go inside. And I think the building really opens up in a way that, you, that is very surprising. It has seven floors, but about 35 different levels. Um, and there's lots of places for, again, this idea of perception and being seen. You use the word theater and performance, which I think is really true. You kind of inadvertently become a part of this performance once you're inside the building. And I think that really makes a building a lot more lively and active and, and fun in a way that doesn't necessarily come across when you're outside on the street. So there's hints to it because there's a glass wall, um, a primary glass facade facing York Street, and you can see through it, I think, the different spaces, but you don't really get, uh, get a sense to what degree the different spaces are open to each other. And I think for uh, the general public in particular, all they see is the kind of concrete forms from mm-hmm. the outside and the very kind of strong, um, perhaps robust and abrasive forms of, of the corrugated concrete formwork, um, which um, might seem imposing. And they are actually mm-hmm. kind of imposing. And especially I, too, have brushed up against it and lost uh, skin and, um, and so on. <laughs> so it's, but I think the building me, will graffiti you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It leaves its mark. And I think, um, but perhaps, you know, that's a lesson, too, that buildings don't need to be always so polite uh, mm-hmm. to touch mm-hmm. or, or kind of easy to look at. And I think it's it, it's a building that challenges you. And I think it certainly challenged me as a young architecture student. And I was in that crowd of students, who a group of people who who didn't like the building when I first saw it when, as a wow. young young freshman. I thought, what the is young this? Young rebel. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed in part because it seems so different from everything else. But yeah. at the same time, it draws it drew me into it, and I had my first art class there as an undergraduate. And as Joyce described, there's a rabbit warren of rooms, and you couldn't quite figure out where you were. And I remember trying to exit the building after my first class, and I somehow wound up in the sub basement because I missed the exit <laughs> yeah. to go out, and I didn't know where I was. And there was a sudden <laughs> sense of fear that you're 
you're kind of like scared, not true, feel trapped. And it kind of has that, that kind of quality, which I think uh, attracted me then yeah. uh, to the building as well. It, it was That's a space to get lost in. And even before its renovation, it was a space that you could have really work with as an architecture student. You could pour things on it. You could <laughs> you know, be rough with it in a way that uh, the building didn't seem to mind. Yeah. And that was very different from the kind of look but don't touch feeling you get from many of the other buildings. I kind of want to pivot because I want to make a point that uh, actually we were talking about before we started, and that is that you guys have hacked the premise already <laughs> uh, by taking us to Weir, uh, we, we, um, which I, I really appreciate the capacity to have a kind of sprawling conversation uh, about the history of the architecture school. I think that's fantastic, and I think it has a lot to do, it resonates with your approach and your work at Plan B Architecture and Urbanism, where um, the planetary implications of decisions at any scale are really on the table. So that's like one thing I want to discuss a little. Uh But then the other that might even have a more direct relationship with Weir Court is you took us to a place where there's a landscape and Uh a great deal of artificiality to that landscape. Uh And I wanted to talk about your recent work in Columbus, Indiana. Uh Um, So if you guys could just kind of talk about the project. And I don't think there maybe necessarily will be a one-to-one here, Uh but I do want to kind of talk about uh, notions of landscape and notions of the artificial and and your approach to that project. Yeah. I mean, I think that that sort sort of is the kinds of sites that we gravitate towards, which are these wonderful um, um, complexities to these sites that you could sort of see the whole world and a kind of entire landscape and a sort of larger question of how we have um, mechanized it or not or controlled it or what we, how we define nature, um, as well as the kinds of larger architectural, theoretical, and historical questions within that. So um, in some ways, I think you're right um, that we um, the way we chose this site was because it let you, uh, maybe it's just like an inability to commit to, because by, by doing this, we weren't like fixed to talking about one specific building, one specific organization. But it let us sort of like choose 20,000 offshoots to, mm-hmm. to talk about and 20 different stories and they connect across a lot of different um, um, questions um, is, is really sort of a, a lot of how we like looking at these projects that, you know, in one site you could sort of talk as much about, you know, a history of trees and diseases <laughs> as you could about, you know, um, the history of the architecture school or James Gamble Rogers and Coxbridge, wherever the conversation leads us. Um, so. And the ground is actually, you know, a construction ground and that's something that we played with quite a lot in some of our projects and especially for Columbus as yeah. well was the idea that we have over time constructed our our landscape in, and shaped it in, in so many different ways and we are courts a great example of that the, one of its most surprising qualities is that even uh, when you're on the kind of surface of we are court what you don't realize is beneath you is an underground auditorium that seats kind of a few hundred people and it's a kind of spectacular space onto itself but also it's surrounded and then kind of tiptoeing around this auditorium are the mo- most essential ingredients of New Haven which are the elm trees the only surviving yeah. elm trees of, of the elm city I mean so I've also always that, I've I've always wondered and had this image of like this auditorium and these three elm trees like roots hugging this yeah. <laughs> big subterranean yeah, right. space and you're just sort of you know you you just you always kind of question that sort right. of definition of what topography and ground is hmm. um, and I guess and that, yeah. you know related to that question of how you how um, I think for us doing the project that we did in Indiana which it, um, was an installation that's up until the end of um, I think till the end of November. Yeah, and longer. so let's briefly describe the project. So essentially, sure. you're working. 
You're working at the Cummins headquarters, is that right? That was your that was a given site. Yes. Uh, and the and the pro, the installation or folly or maybe there's a better word to describe it is part of the um, exhibit Columbus series, right? Yep. Which includes um, I think how many pavilions? We just went recently and it seemed like countless yeah. um, um, pavilions. But you guys have a real standout there by the, the the Commons facility, which for those not familiar with the headquarters, maybe you could describe it a little bit in terms of sure. what your context was. Sure. Yeah. So this is um, I mean Columbus is a wonderful you know city. Columbus, Indiana is not Ohio. Just <laughs> everybody always gets that wrong to clarify, uh, to clarify. Uh, I, I, an amazing sort of uh, architectural landmark of a city where every you know it's like this tiny town but instead of you know the post office and the library being these kind of vernacular pieces like your post office is by Kevin Roche and your library is by Pei and the church town is by Sarandon um, for this kind of tiny town and our site was um, Kevin Roche John Duglu Associates um, um, Corp corporate headquarters for Cummins, and it's sort of this grand, long building with this huge pergola um, that sits really on the, on the edge of town, so if you sort of zoomed out and looked at a Google aerial, you could kind of see the kind of Midwestern grid town that sort of decays into a park designed by Stanley Sadowitz, and then into the hills and the kind of rolling landscape of the Indiana um, you know, forests. One of the kind of prominent features along this is this giant pergola, which is sort of wrapped with this ivy. We were really um, captivated by that kind of sense of that site, both as this kind of larger landscape, this constructed landscape of you know Jeffersonian grids and Midwestern grids, and the kind of relationship with the topography, and this building really being this kind of locus for all of that. Um, and certainly, the other aspect of it was you know diving into the mind of Kevin Roche. We had the wonderful opportunity of meeting with Kevin and talking oh, wow. um, to him you about did, the work. You and did talk about the work. Oh, we did, amazing. yeah, because he, part his whole archives, you know, for him being through the legacy of Sarandon's office, yeah. um, they're all here. So when we were sort of um, diving into this project, we're able to go into the manuscripts and archives and actually pull out all the original source material, oh, wow. which is all of his drawings from this, and look into what that was. And, um, you know, totally brilliant. Like, just them, the way he would um, work between interior and exterior and how you sort of um, understood that. So one of the kind of moments that we were really uh, fascinated by was um, stepping into the lobby and standing at, and you, I don't know if you, you all went when you visited, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and when you stand on that corner where you're seeing both the outside and the inside and you know, you can't tell. You see a kind of car passing. You can't tell. There's all these reflections. Um, so that that was really um, one of the kind of senses of space that you wanted to create in this in this landscape inside in our installation. The idea of of also bringing a kind of playfulness to this constructed landscape was important for us. So how do we amplify, again, the essential attributes of the pergola? So we kind of multiplied the columns, made them reflective, bringing the kind of reflectivity of the interior mm -hmm. qualities of the building to the outside, but also kind of um, introducing these mounds um, as features that were places where people could gather, but also create a kind of different datum to um, the kind of flatness of the site, but playing up the kind of the kind of topographic qualities and features of the landscape beyond it. But again, it's highly constructed. So um, underneath the sod and grass, the the, the sod and, and the dirt is a kind of waffle like highly geometric structure, but it wasn't about amplifying or kind of drawing attention to the 
tectonic qualities of the geometry, but actually it's the surface of the mind itself as a mm. as a ground, for, a new kind of ground for play. And yeah. it's, it's also, I mean, if you before, I guess, before the installation, it was kind of liminal, but it was very much like a corridor that you would walk down, so it's very kind of axial. Um, so all the interventions really were creating that sort of um, desire for a place that you could wander through, get lost in, sort of collect around. And for the forms of these landscapes to be sort of um, slightly familiar, but just, you know, unfamiliar, like, does that look like an animal? Does that look like, you know, it's going to get up and move? Or is that, um, you know, like a little mm-hmm. kind of conversational area for them to have that sort of fairy tale like quality, mm-hmm. because you can tell they're not natural mounds, but mm-hmm. they're also, um, you know, um, not overly constructed in a way. Yeah, that they might come alive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Something between the natural and the artificial. Yeah, um, yeah but still a, la- a constructed landscape. I think that's yeah, great. Yeah, they're really fantastic too because they the scale is so critical mm-hmm. for them. I, you know, if they were larger, you wouldn't really be able to occupy them. And if mm-hmm. they were smaller, I think they would operate more as landscapes. So I, I think it's interesting because scale is something that you are both very highly sensitive to in your work. And although this is like a microcosmic look at scale, um, yeah, the sensitivity to that was really interesting to see. Joyce, you mentioned the, the zooming out uh-huh. in Google, which I think like comes back to this um, ambition within your work and within the firm to kind of look at this larger scale. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, you talked earlier about the, that tactic might open up more possibilities uh-huh. in work, but could you talk a little bit more about this kind of tactic of zooming out in your work? Sure. Sure. So one of the things that we've been working on for quite some time now is this larger City of Seven Billion project, which uh, really looks at the world or reframes the world as one large city of seven billion people. Um, And uh, and I guess part of what we sort of look for is both the relationship between what you see around the world every day, you know, at um, and how that relates to this kind of much larger planetary cosmological scale of urbanization in a way. Um, so um, I think that's always sort of in the back of our mind because we're sort of simultaneously, you work on this kind of installation that's a tiny site, but you're always also thinking about how a place is connected. So for us, we loved looking at Columbus, not only as this sort of tiny Midwestern town, but this place that literally has um, factories around the world, 190 Mm. countries or whatever it is, um, that literally produces the engines that power the entire world. I mean, so you see this tiny community of engineers and brilliant scientists and these families and these people walking around, you know, and on the surface it seems like totally local, you know, after one week there, you can't walk down the street without like spending two hours because you literally are talking to everybody. Um, but they were literally <laughs> totally tethered to the entire world. So um, so it's just interesting to kind of see that or see the whole world through that. And I guess having that kind of constant awareness um, is something that sort of motivates um, a lot of the work we've done. So separately, you know, there's a lot of this kind of um, research that we've been looking at, which is much more um, what are the ways in which we have um, inadvertently or advertently, you know, basically unconsciously designed the entire world and, de- and designed the entire planet um, mm-hmm. through the kinds of infrastructures, the ways that we've moved, even just the ways we've conceived and surveyed and um, made sense of the world and how we can um, make sense of those kind of, um, let's say, unconscious techniques and therefore develop a repertoire of how we kind of actually make sense of those kinds of moves and can have far greater agency that is in a, I guess, positive way mm-hmm. towards what it means to be um, one, you know, world of seven billion people really operating as one city. 
and even the idea of zooming on is both, I think, what conceptual and literal. Mm-hmm. You know, conceptual in the way that we again have are considering a model of urbanization that is uh, where the city has grown from just being this kind of nodes within the world to being the size of the world and now even beyond it as well. But it's this idea of you know, looking at it from maybe a, a larger distance. But also it's, it's, um, it's quite literal. Like we have occupied ever greater heights, you know, the kind of um, larger, like ever-expanding altitudes or, or layers of urbanization um, from, you know, so it's not just seeing the city like purely as a footprint that's horizontal, but also one that's vertical, that has extended beyond the atmosphere into space, you know, from satellites and drones and so on. So there's the kind of dual, the kind of duality to the notion of Zoom, that it's both a kind of a literal way in which we're operating in the world, but also a kind of conceptual way of seeing and perceiving the world from a cosmological kind of vantage point. That's a, a fascinating insight into the work. I think that uh, in, it works extremely well in Columbus. I was struck mm-hmm. that given what I know about you guys and the scale at which you typically work, I was just uh, amazed to see you were able to deploy these tactics. And I think there's kind of, in my mind, there were kind of three attitudes of um, the of uh, working on the site. There was mm-hmm. the kind of site specificity of a kind of direct experience of what's there. There was a kind of contextualism. And the third thing is more of what you did, which is kind of uh, resonate with maybe larger themes and try not to focus so much on Columbus itself as an exception or a single point, mm-hmm. uh, but actually kind of acknowledge its kind of global role, global mm-hmm. influence. I mean, it did become a laboratory for this certain type of corporate architecture that mm-hmm. um, kind of took over the, uh, took over the landscape. going to move um, uh, across the street in a moment but are there um maybe if there are any just kind of final final remarks that you wanted to say about this this space or our, our our conversation today or recommendations for listeners of of what to visit and what to see if they ever come to new haven and yale i guess it came up in the conversation that you know there's more beyond the surface of things and um especially with rudolph hall that the building might seem imposing but beyond but within it is a whole world of activity and and life and and even playfulness um going on so and the same applies with we are caught i think it looks it doesn't really exist if you Mm -hmm. if you don't know it so you kind of have to look for it and you know beyond the kind of imposing um quasi-Doric and kind of Egyptian-like facade of (laughs) Skull and Bones, which is a secret society. So so the tomb of Skull and Bones, which is one of many secret societies at Yale, the Society for Seniors, uh, forms one kind of side of the entrance to We Accord. So um, you you kind of have to find these places, but it's all accessible to the public. And I think this idea of um, defining the limits of what the kind of public domain is is something that people can be more vigilant of and, and take control of. So I think that's even within a kind of seemingly closed and elite campus that mm-hmm. Yale sometimes can appear to be, one finds these pockets of of, uh, mm-hmm. of kind of um, civic space that you can appropriate or take advantage of. And I think that I find quite um, compelling. I think we sort of appreciate about the entire idea of architecture and the environment around us is that it's it's hard to sort of define this as one single author per se, mm-hmm. um, which I think is what makes it really unique. I mean, it really is this sort of agglomeration through time and each person had to kind of respond to the next person. Each person had to relate to that and sort of what makes it wonderful and 
and magical and um, the kind of complexity we appreciate about it is all of those games that are being played and you can read it on so many different levels on one hand we could probably have you know you kind of tell a sort of long story of architectural history theory and discourse through all the different buildings or you could talk about you know materials and crafts and tectonics behind all of these different you know foreboding masonry walls whether it's you know you know, our injuring Rudolph Hall walls or, you know, the masonry of skull and bones. Um, but, um, or you can just sort of enjoy it as somebody who is like intellectually curious or a young Yale student or whoever that's just wandering and decides to, you know, poke your way off of the street and, you know, walk down an alley and see what's behind the corner and, you know, discover a kind of place that you think might be your own and unbeknownst to you is actually this kind of wonderful historic place. So um, I, I really like that about um, the story of this place, I guess. Another. Joyce and Bamal, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about Weir Hall, the Yale School of Architecture, and the many other notable buildings on Yale's campus. For images of the campus and information on Joyce and Bamal's City of Seven Billion Project, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman.